Amen. Kids, you can go to Kids on the Rock this morning. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 24. We're going to try to get through the whole chapter today. We are going to get through the whole chapter today. One of the good things about having two services is I know exactly how much time it's going to take. And I know what to cut out and what to leave in. What didn't work in the first service. So we're getting close to the end of Acts. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. We go straight through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Acts right now. And the reason we're in Acts 24 today is because we were in Acts 23 last week. And uh, so we're just going section by section, uh, verse by verse. And we're getting close to the end. There's only 28 chapters. So as we have walked through the book of Acts, we've seen that it's a book about the church. It's about the church on mission how Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, worked through His witnesses, His church, and that mission that's still continuing today. Acts shows us who we are as His witnesses, going forth, making disciples as Jesus commanded each and every one of His uh, disciples to do. So today we are going to get through all of chapter 24, and we're going to go pretty quick, so stay with me. Um, we're going to see Paul is... Um, the faithful witness who is on trial. He's going to be on trial before Felix. If you were here last week and walked with us over the last few weeks in chapter 23, um, we saw last week specifically that in chapter 23, the Jews in Jerusalem that had it out for Paul were plotting against him to kill him as he was in custody uh, of the Romans. And so the Roman tribune, we saw right before we finished last week, um, sent Paul away from Jerusalem under the Roman guard, under uh, 470 soldiers protecting him off to Caesarea to the governor. The governor's name was Felix. And in chapter 24, what we're going to do is we're going to watch the earthly trial before Felix that Paul undergoes. But what I want you to see before we even read the text is that there's a bigger trial going on here as well. A trial whose, whose judge is the eternal God who calls his witnesses to be faithful, no matter what the circumstances. Now in this trial we're going to see in chapter 24, Paul's a prisoner. And he's seemingly at the mercy of Felix, the governor. But in reality, Felix himself will be placed under the examination by this true judge by the end of this chapter. So what we're going to do is we're going to read this morning, I only read the first nine verses and then kind of walk through it. I'm going to read 21 verses all at once to get you the whole story in your mind, and then we're going to back up and take it section by section. Sound good? Okay, well, that's what we're going to do. All right, verse 1 says, After, again, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned... Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, talking to Felix, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. You might get diabetes from all that sugar. He says, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. It's his introduction. Then he brings charges. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots, 
among all the Jews throughout the world and, and as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And, and when the governor had, had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I know that's a lot of text and it's not even all the text we're going to do today. So... Let's get a good seat in the saddle and we'll, uh, we'll go through it. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would just help me to, um, to be clear and to be right about uh, how we handle your word today. God, we're here to hear your voice, not mine, not a history lesson, not a lesson about um, what Paul did and, and how he went from place to place. God, we're here to hear your voice in our hearts and only you can do that. So God, we pray that your spirit would come and that you would speak to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we see is we look at how Paul handles this trial, which is going to be the first of several trials that he goes through over the, over the last few chapters of Acts, is that we're always going to be facing lies and false accusations in this world. In, in the very first section, in the first, first nine verses, you, you see in the first five, the first four um, the high priest comes down and the elders of the Jews come down. And they come down with, uh, to Caesarea, to Felix, to this trial with this lawyer, their spokesman named Tertullus. He's the one that's going to speak for them. And it says when he begins his case, it says, Since through you, he's talking to Felix, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. That's what I meant when I said you're going to get diabetes from all that sugar he's tossing around. It's normal in, in the etiquette of Roman court to begin by honoring the judge, but man, he's laying it on really thick, isn't he? Uh, and not only is he just sucking up to Felix, you know, he, he's flat out lying. Felix made life miserable for the Jews. The historian Flavius Josephus says that, that there were all kinds of disturbances and uprisings and riots and seditions during Felix's uh, administration during the Jews. And Felix responded to them all the same way. Crucify everybody. 
He was cruel and he was brutal and the Jews hated him. The Roman uh, historian Tacitus says this, quote, He was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. And in fact, it was for his cruelty, we're going to see at the end of this chapter that he is removed from his governorship, but it was for his cruelty that Rome eventually stripped him of his position. So Tertullus here, this lawyer for the, the prosecution, if you will, he's just lying. He's flattering the judge, trying to get the judge on his side. And then when he brings his charges against Paul, he's lying about those as well. He says, oh, great Felix, blah, 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 hear us briefly. And he says, we found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. There's something missing right there, isn't it? They didn't see it in the first service. Y'all see it? What's missing? Ah, verse 7. Good, paying attention. Verse 7. It's not there in the ESV. If you have it in a New American Standard, verse 7 has brackets around it. If you have a, a New International Version, I think they just bracket the number 7 in, in their Bible, in, in their translation. Holman Christian Standard has it, but as a footnote, all of your Bibles should have a footnote. If you want a full exposition of why there are variants like this, uh, why there are some places like this in Scripture uh, and how we can trust our New Testament. I did a whole sermon on it in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. So if you want to go to the church's website and look up Acts 8, 37, I did a whole thing on how we can trust the New Testament and where these variants come from. If you want just a quick, simple answer, the reason that it's not in the ESV and footnoted and bracketed in most of your Bibles is because that phrase in verse 7 basically just says... Uh, the Jews are complaining to Felix and they say, and, and we had everything under control and Claudius Lysias came and took him away from us. You know, he's blaming Claudius for... And the reason why it's not in the ESV is because it's not found in any Greek manuscript before the 8th century. And that's why that they took it from the ESV, they bracketed it in all the other Bibles. It is in some Syriac translations, but that's a little earlier than that, but it's in no Greek manuscripts. Does that help you any? I know y'all didn't have, I had a lot more fun with all that than you did, but that's okay. Back to the text. I didn't want to just pass it up and not say anything like I'm, I'm, I'm blind to the fact that it goes from six to eight. Tertullus brings three charges against Paul. The first charge in verse five is rioting, sedition, inciting a rebellion. He calls Paul a plague. Some of your translations may say a pest or a troublemaker. He, he stirred up riots among the Jews all over the world. That's, their, that's the charge. Rioting and rebellion isn't a charge that Rome took lightly. Any hint of it was always met with force. The second charge is that Paul's a ringleader of a heretical sect. It says the sect of the Nazarene. The word translated sect is where we get the word heresy. Tertullus is saying Paul and these Christians as a whole, this whole sect of them are dangerous and rebellious and we're we're an unauthorized new breakaway religion, which was a threat to everyone. And the third charge was that he tried to profane the temple in verse 6. And that's why he was taken into custody. Now, we talked a few weeks ago about how 
The temple was such a big deal to the Jews that, that Rome gave them the liberty to ban any Gentile, Roman or otherwise, from entering into the intercourse. So Felix knew this was a big deal as well. If this charge was true, it would set the whole city off. And if you remember in chapter 23, it was some Jews from Asia that accused Paul of doing this, of bringing a Gentile into the, into the inner court. And that's what caused the mob. That's what caused the riot. That's what caused them to start beating Paul and try to kill him. And the Romans had to intervene. And we saw back in chapter 23 that it wasn't true. It wasn't true that Paul started all of this. And verse 9 here, the Jews just add their voices to what Tertullus is saying. They were affirming all of these false charges. But if you notice, there's something else missing from this introduction and these, this prosecution of Paul. What's missing is evidence of any kind. They present no evidence at all. They present no witnesses at all. In the next section, Paul is going to refute all of these, all of these charges. But this is very instructive for us today, to see this witness on trial and what he faces. Because in our culture, lies and falsehoods about Scripture, about Christianity, about, about our faith, are they abound, and sooner or later they're going to hit you. They're going to find you, whether it's the world at large, whether it's the culture, whether it's your friends or neighbors. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. You're going to face these things. Probably already have. If you want a good example, you know, today just uh, in true biblical Christianity called hateful, divisive, backward, bigoted, seen as fanatical and crazy. If you dare hold to the truth of what God's Word says, all of God's Word, and allow Scripture to inform the way you think, what you value, the way that you live, you'll be called all kinds of things, you extremist you. But at the same time, the world thinks that, you know, true Christianity are those who, you know, say Jesus was just a good moral teacher that taught us how to love and how to tolerate everything and deny all the other truths of Scripture, that will always be accepted by the world. But the faithful witness to Christ from the time of Paul down through history and still today have always had to endure lies and false accusations. Most of the martyrs died through church history not because I'm killing you because you are a Christian, but because of some trumped up charge that wasn't true. You are a hater of mankind. They blamed the first century Christians, called them cannibals because they were eating the body and the blood of Christ. And so they called them cannibals. So lies and false accusations go with the deal in this fallen world. And so what do we do? That's the question, right? What do we do? We do what Paul does in this section. We speak the truth from a clear conscience. As we read a minute ago, Paul's rebuttal, the first thing you see is that he begins his defense the traditional Roman way, you know, honoring the judge, but he doesn't use flattery, he doesn't embellish, and he doesn't lie about who Felix is. Verse 10, he says, And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerily make my defense. That's it. He's respectful. He honors Felix for the office that he holds, but he doesn't lie about how wonderful Felix is or how great Felix has done or any of those things. He basically just says... You've been a governor for a while, so I'm going to give you my defense. He just acknowledges him. And then he begins his defense, and he's going to take one charge at a time. Are you with me? Say, I'm with you. Okay, some of you got it. He's going to take one charge at a time. First, they said he was starting riots. He was stirring everybody up. 
In verse 11, he refutes that charge. 11 through 13, actually. He says, you can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul's saying, I wasn't in Jerusalem long enough to make up a riot or to stir up people. It's not been more than 12 days since I first entered the city. And during that time, I wasn't disputing or stirring up any crowd anywhere in the city. He wasn't even preaching anywhere in Jerusalem at this time that we know of. And remember, he went straight to James and the church elders who asked him to go and purify himself in the temple and pay the expenses for these four guys taking a vow. You remember that when we walked through those chapters? So Paul says, look, I didn't stir up anybody in Jerusalem and they can't prove any of this. It's simply not true. And then the second charge that they accuse him of is being a ringleader of a heretical sect. And so he says... But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He says, oh, I am guilty, and I confess to you that I do follow the way. The way is what the early Christians called themselves. He says, they call this a sect, a heresy. But in reality, I worship the God of our fathers. Paul would say, I believe in everything that, that Scripture says. All that's written in the law, all that's written in the prophets. Paul says, I'm not the one departing from the God of Israel. I'm the only one here who's following Him. Paul proclaims Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Scriptures and the hope of Israel that they've always looked forward to and been prophesying toward Paul's saying, I'm not part of a heretical sect. The way of Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's religion and the scripture and the promises of God and all of those things. Paul says, I'm worshiping the God of our fathers according to the way. And at the end of that section, he says, I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust, meaning there will be all will be raised and there will be a judgment. And Paul says, because I believe in this resurrection, because I believe in this judgment, I strive to live with a clear conscience before God and before man. Look at this. With his life on the line, facing lies and false accusations, Paul calmly and simply tells the truth about what happened and about who he is and about what he believes. And he does so from a clear conscience. But we'll talk about more about that in just a second. But finally, the third charge was that he profaned the temple. He defiled the temple. In verse 17, he says, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Then he says, But some Jews from Asia, and then he stops and breaks his thought right there. He went to the temple, we saw in chapter 22 and 23, he went to the temple because James and the church elders asked him to submit to a cleansing ritual to unite the Jewish and Gentile churches. That's really strange to claim that I went in to defile and profane the temple if I'm there to take part in a purifying ritual of the temple. It's just not true. 
But this is really interesting to me. As he's telling the story, you, you kind of see where his mind is going. They found me purified in the temple. And what he's going to do next is just tell them what happened. These Jews from Asia, they came and they started shouting and they drew a mob. And you know, you know the story. We walked through it when we went those chapters. But when he says Jews from Asia, he brings them up and is about to tell the story. But when he mentions them, he stops and he realizes they're not here. And instead of continuing the testimony about what happened, he raises a legal objection before Felix. Roman law required that persons could confront and face their accusers. So he says, and Jews from Asia, and he's about to continue the story, and he says, they ought to be here. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men, and he's talking to the high priests and the Jews that are around him, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before them in the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. You see what he did? He breaks off his testimony about what happened. He says, wait a minute, my accusers aren't even here. These Jewish leaders that have been talking and bringing these accusations, they didn't see any of what happened. The only thing that they can testify to is to what I said in the council when I was brought before them in the Sanhedrin. And the only thing I said there was, I'm on trial for the resurrection. Remember, and they blew up after that. So if these guys intend to accuse me, Paul would say, let's talk about the resurrection. Let's talk about what this whole thing is really about. And this is where Felix just shuts the whole thing down. But through all of this, through all of this testimony, we see how we respond to false accusations and lies and whatever the world throws at us. Paul responds calmly. He tells the truth in every statement, at every point, and he does so, as he says, from a clean conscience before God and before man. He strives to live his life with a clear conscience toward God and man. When, when your conscience, believer, is clear before God, you can be cu- accused of all kinds of things and it not affect you at all, knowing that your conscience is clear before God and before man. To live with a clear conscience before God, it, it, it's to live following Christ, repenting when we do sin, and we all do, Confessing that sin, as we talked about during the, the singing the songs. Confessing that sin, holding fast to the cross, holding fast to the gospel. And when we live openly with a clear conscience before God, living the same way in public that we live in private, and we live with a clear conscience before men, doesn't mean we don't ever offend people. Sometimes truth offends people. But it means we're not disobeying a command of God as we're interacting with other people. When we live that way, we don't have to fear speaking the truth, regardless of what result it brings. So he's faced with lies and false accusations. He speaks the truth from a clear conscience. And the third thing you see is that being a witness is is being faithful to give the gospel. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix decides we're going to halt this whole thing. 
We're going to delay judgment. He says we're going to wait till Lysias, the Roman tribune, comes down so he can give testimony, but we never are told that he calls for Lysias or that Lysias ever comes. In fact, Paul's just going to sit here for two years. So Felix is lying. He, he just can't afford to decide either way. If he rules against Paul, then a Roman citizen gets executed by the Jews. He's in bad trouble. If he rules for Paul, there's another Jewish uprising, then he's in bad trouble again. So he just decides, we're going to wait this whole thing out. But notice what happens when Paul is waiting. Verse 24 says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul, look at this, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. As Paul remains in prison, he doesn't hesitate to witness to Felix at every opportunity. He proclaims Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah of God, the way of salvation. It says Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Righteousness in the sense meaning, meaning God's righteousness, His holy standard that all people must meet to be right with God. That's perfection. That's His righteousness. This would have shown Felix his sin, his need for salvation, that he fell short of God's righteousness and needed a Savior. He spoke to him about self-control, describing our inability to meet that standard, but also self-control being one of the fruit of the Spirit, part of the new heart given to those who trust in Christ and are born again. And of course, the coming judgment when all people will stand before God and give an account to their Creator. Before we look at how Felix responds to all this, take note at what Paul's doing. He's being faithful to his call to be a witness. Even here, in this unfair situation, he proclaims the message boldly to one who has seemingly authority over him. You know, it wouldn't be surprising to find many people in this situation not really wanting to risk making waves with Felix or risk offending him by talking about sin and judgment and those things. You know, it makes more sense to, I don't know, try to sweet talk him. Maybe he'll let me go. Tell him more about how I was falsely accused. Tell him what really happened. It'd be, be understandable just to try to get out of this predicament. We might even rationalize it. Think, you know, if I can just get out of here, I can, I can continue preaching the gospel everywhere. I can continue going to all these churches. I can continue going to these cities. I can stay on mission for Christ. But Paul knows this is his mission. Jesus has him here for such a time as this. Paul doesn't set his sights out there somewhere on mission when mission is literally right in front of him that God has placed him in. He wants Felix, this wicked governor, to come to know the true and living Christ and to be saved. I wonder what would happen if we all had the same drive to see the lost come to Christ. To see every one of our circumstances, good, bad, or indifferent, as an opportunity to bear witness to Christ, even if it's stuff that we have to suffer through. Here, Paul is faithful. He is a faithful witness to the gospel, even as he's on trial for his life. Why? Because he knows there's a greater judge. There's a more important trial going on. There's a, there's a higher king to whom he's going to have to answer, and he desires to be faithful. And lastly, I want us to see... The urgency, just the urgency of the gospel's call. 
If you back up to verse 25, he says, And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed. Some of your translations may say terrified or afraid. And said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he, hoping that, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him, look at the word, often, and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The message of righteousness and judgment, it rattled Felix. The text says he was alarmed, he was terrified. The message of his sin and the coming judgment shakes him to his core as it should. Felix feels the weight of his sin in light of the coming judgment. I, we talked about it last week, but I can tell you all kinds of things about Felix and his wife Drusilla that would assure you that he was trembling in his sin when Paul was preaching. But through all this, we find at the end of this section, Felix himself is the one that's on trial before the true king. And it's time to make a choice. But Felix does what so many people do. He trembles under the convicting hand of God, under the gospel's call, but decides to put it off till a later time. Verse 25 says, Go away for now. When I get a chance, I'll summon you. Felix's love of his self, of his greed, of his power, of his life was more than he wanted to give up. He thought Paul was going to bribe him. But make sure you notice this. This goes on for two years. It says, Felix summoned Paul and conversed with him often. And it went on for two years. But I want you to see what's not there as we get ready to go. We're never told again after that initial conversation. We're never told again that Felix ever trembled or was alarmed again under the conviction of sin. You know Paul kept speaking the gospel to him, gospel and about Jesus, but there's no indication in the text that he ever felt the alarm, the, the holy fear of his sin again. It really highlights the urgency of the gospel today. There are two tragedies possible for every soul. First is never trembling at your sin, never being alarmed at your sin before God. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, Theirs is the kingdom. The second tragedy is feeling the conviction and the alarm of the spirit, the fear in the face of judgment and saying, I'll deal with that another time. As far as we know, Felix died an unbeliever. That means right now, as I'm speaking to you, on January 8th, 2023, Felix is being tormented in, eternally for his sin. Not because he didn't know the truth. He did. The text told us that he was knowledgeable about the way. Not because he believed there is no God. He certainly did. Not because he believed there is no judgment, or he believed there is no heaven, or he believed there is no hell. It's because he believed there was no hurry. No urgency to deal with this right now. Most diabolical lie Satan's ever told mankind. You've got plenty of time. If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit today, and you know that if you died right now, 
you would die in your sin and face the judgment of God. That conviction, that fear, that, that uneasy feeling, what you're feeling right now, that's a gift from God. Don't put it off. Please don't wait. Don't disregard it. You don't have time. J.C. Rowell said this, Do you think that you will have a more convenient time to think about these things? So thought Felix and the Athenians whom Paul preached, but it never came. The road to hell is paved with such ideas. Better make sure to work while you can. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Say, I'm a young person. I've got plenty of time. No, you don't. Watch football much? I've been at this a long time and I'm 90 years old and I'm not changing now. Okay. Don't run the risk when your soul is at stake. If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you need to do business with God. And we as believers, believers in the room, we need to, we need to, we need to rekindle that urgency. That urgency of the gospel to give this message to those that God puts in our path. For we are on mission for Christ. We read about the books, book of Acts, but our life is on mission for Christ. If we are followers of Christ, we need to have that same urgency to give the gospel to those around us. Do business with God today. Repent and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this time. I, I know it was a lot of text. It was a lot of stuff to get through, God. I pray that you... Your message just uh, resonates with the heart of people, that your spirit would go forth and you would use even just the text that we read to, um, to speak your word, your truth to um, all of us. God, help us, to, help us to have the urgency of knowing that you've given us a mission day in, day out, to be witnesses for you, to testify, to give the gospel in every situation, in every place where you've brought us. God, help us to see those open doors. Help us to see those times when you have placed us specifically for mission, God. And I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I ask that you would speak to them, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would show them Jesus Christ crucified for them. And God, they would call out upon you saying, God, I know that, I know that I'm lost. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin separates me from you, but... I believe with all my heart that you gave your son to die for me in my place and that by trusting in him, he takes the penalty of my sin and I'm forgiven. God, I, I'm praying that you would save me. Father, I ask that you would do business in our hearts today, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. I'd love to pray with you if you'd like. Come, would you please stand?